Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. When I was 20 years old, I dropped out of college. I did. I decided to move to China for a whole year to teach English. And I lived in a small city, by Chinese standards, of 8 million people. I, for 10 months, had to learn to navigate grocery shopping, uh, ordering food, getting my hair cut, buying clothes, and making friends in a culture that was vastly different from my own. Not only was I 12 time zones removed from all of my friends and family, but I was reminded every single day that I was different. Because in this city of 8 million people, there were probably 200, maybe 300 foreigners, people who weren't from China. And it was around 2008, so the Summer Olympics were about to arrive in Beijing, and the Chinese people were absolutely thrilled. They were looking for any excuse to practice their English. And so um, I would go down from my apartment to grab a soda, and they would constantly want to have a conversation with me. Where are you from? Why are you here? They would want to touch my hair. It was awkward. Uh, I, would, I would be riding the bus to my job every single day, and people would openly just pull out their phones and start taking pictures of me. Everywhere I went, um, people, I would hear this word over and over again. I would hear it whispered and shouted from across the street. The word is Lao Wai. It would be yelled at me constantly, so I learned it very quickly, and it is the Chinese word for foreigner. And let me tell you that Lao Wai does not sound any better in Chinese than it does in English. Um, no one was openly cruel to us. No one yelled at us to go back to where we came from. No one became even noticeably frustrated when we had no idea what was going on. But everything that we did was a reminder of how different we were. We knew that every single person that we saw was speculating whispering behind our backs or telling their friends when they got to work that they saw a Lao Wai on the way to work that day. It was exhausting and demoralizing, and it never stopped. We got so frustrated with the constant reminders of our otherness that we actually wrote a little song about it. Because it was Christmas time, we were really filling in the Christmas spirit, so it's the tune, to the tune of Jingle Bells. And it goes, um, Ting Bu Dong, Ting Bu Dong, Woman Ting Bu Dong, Woman Sure I Bai Wu Lao Wai, Woman Ting Bu Dong, which basically means uh, we don't understand. We don't understand. None of us understand. We are just stupid foreigners and we don't understand. Every, every, we would sing this to like taxi drivers or store clerks who would make a big deal out of us being from America and they loved it. They would cackle. And we would laugh along with them because that's what you got to do. But it was also just a reminder that we were never going to belong. This was my first glimpse into the life of a person who chooses whatever the circumstances to uproot their life and live somewhere that they don't understand the language, the culture, or the customs. And we're reading a story right now through the book of Ruth uh, where the characters felt exactly like that. In chapter one, Naomi has brought her family to the land of Moab and they are all foreigners. 
And in the first couple of verses, half of her family dies. Her, her husband dies, so she tries to piece her life back together, tries to assimilate to the culture. She finds two Moabite women to marry her sons. And then over the course of 10 years, her two sons die as well. Needless to say, her life has not turned out how she expected it. And so she, she talks to Orpah and Ruth, her two daughters-in-law, and she says, you stay here. I'm, I'm going to go back home. I'm calling it quits. Um, I, will, I will probably never see you again, um, but I want you to rebuild your life here with your friends and family. And after some tears, Orpah agrees, but Ruth clings to Naomi, and she says, no, your people will be my people, and your God, my God. So as we transition from chapter one into chapter two, we are going from Naomi being the foreigner to Ruth accepting the position that she is now in. She will now be the Laowai. She will stand out wherever she goes. And as they arrive in Israel, it is autumn. It is the beginning of the barley harvest in Bethlehem, and they are just arriving. They have no way of supporting themselves, and winter is on its way. Winter is coming. Naomi is too old to do physical labor, and so she is wholly dependent on Ruth to be able to figure something out for the both of them. And in Israel society, in particular, the Old Testament has written in some laws to specifically help out in situations like this. One is in Deuteronomy 24:19. It says, when you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you for the work of your hands. So this specific practice of caring for, for, caring for foreigners was not at all the norm. In most societies, travelers, orphans, widows were left to fend for themselves. And for many, it was a death sentence. But in those days, uh, ethnic groups survived by sticking together. Being a foreigner was, could, could mean that you were a threat, and so you were treated as an outsider. Now, the Moabite nation actually appears several times in the Old Testament. You've heard of Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. Abraham is the father of the Israelite nation. Everyone in Israel can trace their roots back through to Abraham. But Abraham had a cousin named Lot, where they're... They were traveling together, and their, uh, their flocks got too large for the lamb to support both of them. So Abraham offers Lot a choice. He says, I will take whichever land that you don't want, but here's a really, really nice green lush land. Here's an okay land. It's not as great. And of course, Lot's like, I want the green one. That's awesome. And so that's when they separate. And Lot has a son named Moab. So that is... The descendants uh, are the Moabites that we hear about in this story. So they're not exactly at war with each other, but they're not exactly on good terms either. But Israelite culture specifically stated that you ensured the care for the weak and the vulnerable, even strangers and foreigners. This system that God set up in place demanded sacrifice and it combated greed on behalf of all of the farmers because if there was a piece of grain or barley that the workers missed, you wouldn't go back to make sure that you got 100% of the product that you planted. That means a loss of profit and potential waste. There's no guarantee that anybody's going to pick it up and it might just rot. Any good businessman is not going to allow that to happen. But those who followed God and those who understood the intention behind the law 
would live by it and contribute to the well-being of the vulnerable. This system created by God wasn't exactly a free handout. It required the traveler or orphan or widow to put forth some effort too. They had to go out into the field to gather the grain themselves. It's hard work. Then they have to process it and then they have to bake it into bread. In order for this system to work, both parties had to participate and they had to submit to the will of the Lord. It was more than a, a welfare check that arrived in the mail. It was a cooperative effort and it ensured buy-in from both parties and maintained the productivity and dignity of everyone that participated in the system. So this is what Ruth does. She heads out into the fields hoping to find a farmer that understands God's law and will allow her to glean behind the workers. And this is when we meet our third main character named Boaz. He is immediately introduced as a worthy man or a man of character. And he notices this young woman, Ruth, trailing behind his workers. And he asks kind of his swarmen, like, who is this? And he spills the tea. Uh, he explains that she has been working hard all day. Uh, he knows her entire backstory, everything that's happened to her, and that she's just taken a short rest this whole day, which did allow her to regain some HP by rolling hit dice. But God had warned the Israelites not to intermarry with other groups after entering the promised land. These groups didn't know him yet, and so it was dangerous for them to potentially fall prey to, uh, to worshiping other gods. Um, so while Naomi letting her sons marry uh, a foreigner is one thing, bringing Ruth back into the promised land as a daughter-in-law without her son obviously has caused the neighbors to talk. We know this because uh, the people around her already know everything about her, and she has literally just arrived. But Boaz, described as a man of character, um, he approaches Ruth and encourages her to come back to his farm every day. He'll make sure that she can be close to the young women working in the field and that none of his young men will harm her. He wants to ensure that she's safe and she doesn't end up somewhere where someone might try to take advantage of her. And he even gives her permission to drink water that he's provided for his workers. So basically, he treats her like a human being. When Boaz treats her with this level of dignity and kindness, Ruth instantly realizes her luck. It's not luck, guys. Uh, she has now found a safe place to do an honest day's work, be treated as a person. She is so moved that, like Leanne said, she bows down in front of Boaz and thanks him for his generosity. She says, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, how you left your father and mother and your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, your Lord, my Lord, for you have comforted me, and you've spoken kindly to your servant, even though I am not one of your servants. So here's this man, Boaz. He doesn't instantly treat her like an outsider. He doesn't resent her for picking up sheaves that she could have, he could have profited off of, but instead he sees the truth of her situation. He recognizes that she's experienced a huge loss, the death of her husband. 
And she not only loved her husband, but her husband's mother so much that she uprooted her entire life to be faithful to her. Boaz doesn't see Ruth as a foreigner, but as a strong woman who has the courage to make herself vulnerable in order to be faithful to Naomi and by extension her God. Boaz knew the scripture, but more than that, he understood the heart of it. He was able to see past his own immediate growth of his business or any ethnic prejudices that might have been placed on him and sees Ruth not as a poor woman from another culture, but as a woman of character. Maybe today when you walked in here, you feel a little bit like Ruth. Life has not gone according to plan. Maybe your bank account is empty or a relationship that you thought was going to work out has ended or some medical news is weighing heavy on your heart. And maybe you're actually questioning this whole idea of whether or not God really is faithful, whether his promises are true. Following God is hard, especially, especially when you don't know how the story is going to end. At this point in her story, Ruth has no idea what God has planned for her, but she continues to move forward in hope and in faith. She just keeps swimming. She's doing enough to keep her head above the water, and sometimes that's all we can do. We trust in God's promises that he knows what's ahead for us, and he's going to bring us through it. When Ruth returns home to Naomi, Naomi is absolutely floored by the amount of barley that she actually brings home. And she asks Ruth, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man that took notice of you. (laughs) And Ruth tells her that his name is Boaz. And Naomi is straight shook. This name Boaz is familiar to her. He's actually a relative of her husband that passed away. That means that he is potentially a kinsman redeemer, someone that has the legal ability to redeem not only their land, but their lives. This is another system that God set in place long before Ruth and Boaz. It's also called guardian redeemer. It indicates a relative who has an implied obligation to help a relative when they are in serious difficulty. In Leviticus 25, 35 through 38, it says, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. God knows this is a big ask and that this is going to require a lot of relational energy because he immediately follows it up with, remember what I did for you. (laughs) He reestablishes his authority and uses that power to benefit the downtrodden. This law, a part of their legal system, helped ensure that no one became completely destitute. And this is a distinctly Jewish practice motivated by the kindness of God towards the people of God. So upon hearing Boaz's name and remembering this law for the first time in a really long time, Naomi feels a little bit of hope. And every single inch of the Bible, including just this four-chapter love story, it's a blink in the time of Israel's history, is pointing forward. 
The reason we have it here is because this is an indicator of who God is and what he wants his people to know about him, that he cares for the destitute, for the downtrodden, and that hope is coming. This points to the story of Christ and how he will redeem us, creating a path back to God. But I'm going to leave some of that for Chris to talk about in the coming weeks. In the meantime, I want to tell you about my favorite insect. I love watching nature documentaries, and if I could meet anybody on God's green earth, Sir David Attenborough would be like at the top of my list. (laughs) My favorite thing about watching them is when I discover an animal that I had no idea existed. And I... 100% struck gold when I learned about the Arctic woolly bear caterpillar. This cute little nugget. Oh my gosh, besides being an adorable ball of fluff, he gets his name in part from his ability to hibernate. While most caterpillars only live for a few months, he has perfected the art of sleeping through the winter. He will spend an entire summer eating snacks, And when it starts to cool down, his body produces cryoprotectant chemicals that allow his entire body to freeze solid. Then, when the weather warms back up, he unfreezes himself, and he is the first in line at the all-you-can-eat buffet of fresh greenery in the spring. And if that cycle of eating and sleeping doesn't make him my spirit animal, I don't know it does. He does this over and over and over again. Because in the Arctic, the winters are, or the summers are very short. He gets a little bit bigger each year. And every winter, he freezes solid. A total of seven years until he's finally large enough to create a cocoon and pupate into the beautiful Arctic woolly bear moth. And at the risk of over-anthropomorphizing a caterpillar, imagine for a moment that you're him. Most of your caterpillar buddies have um, gone on to other things. They have completed their life cycle. They have turned into beautiful moths or butterflies, and they have left you on the forest floor. Meanwhile, winter is coming, and you are running headlong into it. You not only have to survive the winter, you basically have to stop living for months, frozen in time, Now, do you think that his tiny little brain can possibly understand what's happening to him? As the world gets colder and darker, do you think he knows if he's ever going to wake up again? Or does he think that he's, or does he think that, I can't say that, does he think that he's dying? I'm going off script here. When I lived in China, that was the darkest, coldest time of my life. I was removed from all of my support systems, and I was just struggling to get by day by day just to survive, just to literally go to the grocery store and order food. I prayed harder than I have ever prayed in my life, just begging God to show me why I was there because every plan I had made in my life had fallen away. Every relationship, I had a relationship that I thought was going to end in marriage, and it definitely did not. Um, (laughs) That's my husband. Yeah, it didn't work out. It all worked out in the guys. (laughs) 
we're skipping ahead to the end. Uh, <laughs> that relationship did not work out. Different leadership opportunities that I thought I was a really good fit for, I applied and I was rejected. <laughs> and I didn't know what God wanted from me in my life. And I basically opened the door to, what, God, whatever it is that you want, you can have it. And two months later, I was in China. <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> but my life changed in those 10 months because I needed God in a way that I hadn't needed him before. I needed the scriptures. I needed the Psalms of David in order to go to sleep at night. And I prayed in a way that I never had before. We all go through these seasons in our lives of, of pain, sorrow, even death. And some winters are harsher than others. We wonder if we're ever really, truly going to feel warmth again. Sometimes heartache hits us in waves. Sometimes the pain that we're going through, it feels like we're dying. The world seems to be getting darker, the light of hope seems to fade, and we don't know if things are ever going to turn around. Maybe this is the end. And I think the way that we look at our lives is the same way that God, the way that we look at the Arctic bear, woolly bear caterpillar, is similar to the way that God sees us in those moments. Because we can't explain to this fuzzy little guy that he's going to be okay. That even as his body is crystallizing in the ice, that spring will come. And God, he can't always reveal to us in the moment the reason or the purpose behind our suffering. But he assures us in no uncertain terms. For I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you. There are a few things that I think God is trying to communicate to us through this story of Ruth and Boaz. And the number one thing is that God has already provided. Long before Ruth and Boaz came on the scene, God created systems and processes for his people that would inherently care for the marginalized. We could choose these laws around um, reaping the harvest or the kinsman redeemer as cut and dry rules that don't make a lot of sense relationally or financially, or we could understand that the heart of God in that is that he doesn't want his people to suffer when a little grace and a little forgiveness can ease life's pain. We can choose to actively live God's way. And then the universe functions in the way that it was meant to, and people who are in need are cared for, just as God intended. Ruth and Boaz understood the heart behind the rule book, that the author had put these laws in place for the good of his people. They honored that with their actions, even though it wasn't immediately benefiting them. And because they were faithful, when it would have been easy to lose faith, God brought them together. 
None of this would have happened if either of them had acted in such a way that they decided that their way was better than God's. Because God had already provided for them. Number two, when in doubt, do the next right thing. What distinguished Ruth as a woman of character wasn't her life situation. What made Ruth truly special and why we tell her story today is because she pressed on despite all of it. She trusted that doing the next right thing would get her exactly where she needed to be. Because God is here in this story, in the background, caring for Ruth one day at a time, arranging these coincidences where she happens to end up in Boaz's field, who happens to be a kinsman redeemer. He is providing for her needs. Not her wants, but her needs. She has come to the table. She has worked hard. She has enough barley to make bread for a few days or weeks. And that's not enough to set her up financially for the future, but it is enough for her to have hope. So when your future is dark and uncertain and you can't see very far ahead, just do what Anna says in Frozen 2 and do the next right thing. The third thing is to share your surplus. Maybe in this story, you don't relate so much to Ruth. Maybe you relate a little bit more to Boaz. Life has not been quite as hard. You find yourself in a place where you have enough, maybe more than enough. Maybe you don't have a lot, but you don't have to worry about running out of money before rent comes due. Maybe. You have a little bit more margin in your life now than you did in a previous season, where now you have a steady nine-to-five job, or the baby is weaned now, or the kids have moved out of the house, or retirement is right around the corner. What made Boaz a man of noble character wasn't the fact that he had wealth, or a successful business, or that he had survived a drought as a barley farmer. What made Boaz special, and why he is the hero of the story, is that he didn't get caught up in acquiring more. Instead, he looked for ways that he could use his position and his resources to bless the people around him, even if they were strangers. He shared his surplus. In whatever area in your life that you've been blessed, and there is a place that you have been blessed because God's blessings are rich, use those blessings to bless others. That's how the system was made how it's intended to be done. And it, it might be a financial thing, but it could also be things like time or relational energy. Maybe you and your spouse don't have kids yet, but you have the energy and the uninterrupted sleep habits to be able to serve in children's ministry. Maybe now your kids have moved out of the house and you have a spare bedroom that you can offer up to someone who's fallen on hard times. Maybe you aren't in a place where you can dive into the world of foster care and adoption, but you can spare a night to serve foster parents by giving them a night off where they can have a date night and just focus on their marriage. Maybe, just maybe, God is asking you to give more sacrificially to the mission and vision of Area 10 Faith Community. Maybe, I don't know, maybe. But look for where God has already given you some margin and look for ways to share a piece of that with others. There is 
so much in this story that we could dive into. We've still got a couple more weeks to unpack. And I wish I could overhear all of the conversations. Um, there's so much pain and heartache and hope and joy wrapped up into these short little chapters. But I want to reemphasize that the reason that we have this story at all is because it points to Jesus. We know from the example of Jesus that submitting to the will of God, trusting and following him, does not always go the way that we planned. That's why when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays to God, not my will, but yours be done. It was a path that he didn't want to take. But he walks that path on our behalf, the path of a redeemer. Not an easy one, but one that he knew would bring us into a right relationship with God. And by Submitting our lives to him, while it might not seem to benefit us in the short term, it will always get us exactly where we need to be. So the band is going to come out on stage, and they're going to sing an old hymn that has been in the Christian hymn book. I think page 363 is what I heard. For, it's been in our, our repertoire for over 100 years. And generations of believers continue to sing the song, not because we're good at it, but because we need the grace of God constantly in our lives to be able to surrender ourselves to him, to say, not my will, but yours be done. We have to pray that one day we'll be brave enough to follow the example of Jesus Christ and submit our lives to him, the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. So we're gonna enter into a time of communion where we remember the sacrifice that Jesus gave on the cross of his life. Um, during this time, you can come out the left of your aisles forward to the communion station that's in front of your section. And then you can take the little bread and cracker back to your seat and partake in those whenever you feel ready. But I'm hoping that um, we'll take a posture of surrender. In worship, Surrender, uh, worship is, is not just the words that we sing or the things that we think. It's also sometimes just a position that your body is in, that even if your heart isn't there yet, sometimes you open your hands in front of you and, and you let go, um, allowing the things that are not the will of God to slip through your fingers and, and hoping that whatever is sturdy and firm, whatever God has for you remains there. So I want to encourage you, as you feel comfortable, to just... Take that position. Ask God to reveal to you what he wants you to let go of. Maybe there are things in your life that don't belong there anymore. There are things that you've held so tightly onto because it gives you a sense of control. And you just need to release. Let God have his way in that. Dear God, I ask that you be with us this morning. Let us learn from the experience of, of Ruth, what it was like to be a foreigner in a foreign land, to trust in you above your own, my own expectations of what my life is going to look like. That if I do that, if I trust you, if I follow you into a foreign land, that you will show up for me. 
that you always show up where we need you. Not always giving us what we want, but giving us exactly what we need. In Jesus' name, amen.